Welcome to A Short Guide to Meet. This podcast will help you navigate through the program of Dutch literary festival Winternachten 2022. But it will also be a treat for anyone at any time in any place who wants to listen to this conversation with Ruth Oseki. Ruth Oseki is a Japanese-American author, filmmaker and Zen Buddhist. Her novels have been translated into more than 30 languages. Her most recent novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, is shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction 2022. In the novel My Year of Meets, we follow the Japanese-American filmmaker Jane Takagi Little, who makes a series of programs called My American Wife. The series is produced for Japanese television to sell red meat and the American lifestyle to Japanese housewives. We also follow Akiko Ueno, a Japanese woman who is forced to watch this program and prepare and eat the meat by her husband, who works for the show's sponsor, Beef X. I now proudly introduce Ruth Oseki. We talked about writing My Year of Meats, whether fiction can ever be activist, and her work on gory, meaty horror films. Please enjoy. Here's Ruth. My American Wife Meat is the message. Each weekly half-hour episode of My American Wife must culminate in the celebration of a featured meat, climaxing in its glorious consumption. It's the meat, not the missus, who's the star of our show. Of course, the wife of the week is important, too. She must be attractive, appetizing, and all-American. She is the meat made manifest. Ample, robust, yet never tough or hard to digest. Through her, Japanese housewives will feel the hearty sense of warmth, of comfort, of hearth and home, the traditional family values symbolized by red meat in rural America. My Year of Meats was the first novel that I ever wrote. Um, prior to that, I'd been working in the film industry and in the television industry. I started out my career in film working for low-budget horror films. I, I used to be an art director for low-budget horror films, and, and these were really terrible films. They were very exploitative, of course. I'm embarrassed now to, you know, to think about them, but they were films like Breeders, Necropolis, uh, Mutant Hunt, Robot Holocaust. They were all very gory kind of sexploitation films. I just stumbled into this business almost by mistake. I needed a job. I was in New York. I, you know, I, I needed to pay the rent um, and I thought it would be fun. And, um, and it, I have to admit it was fun at least at the time. Um, from there, I moved into, into television uh, and I started working for Japanese TV. And um, most of what we were doing, this was in the 80s, and most of what we were doing were you know, documentary programs. And um, I lived in Japan for quite a while before all of this. In fact, I was, you know, I was studying uh, classical Japanese literature. And when I returned to New York, I didn't find a whole lot of demand for the skill set that I had at the time. So that's how I sort of fell into um, to doing television and film. So I was working, you know, doing this documentary work for Japanese TV. And um, while I was living in Japan, it was very clear to me that the position of women in Japan, uh, you know, was very different than it was in the States. Not that, you know, in the U.S. the position of women was was great, but certainly in Japan, um, it seemed to me that the, you know, sort of stereotype or the ideal for women was to perhaps graduate from college, get a job for a few years, but the ultimate goal was to marry and have children and and not to work. 
Right. And, um, and so this was something that, you know, that I had noticed and, and had talked about a lot with feminist friends in, in, in Japan. You know, when I returned to the States and started doing these documentary programs, um, I was always, you know, trying to figure out ways of, of, of sort of furthering a feminist agenda and, you know, changing the representation, presenting kind of women in a more uh, sort of empowered light. And um, so one of the thoughts that I had, um, a lot of the programs that we did, you know, traveled, sort of took us all around the country. And, um, and during my travels, um, I met a lot of really wonderful, interesting, empowered American women. And I thought, maybe there's a way to make a television program um, about American wives, women who are, who are married, whatever that means, who had families, whatever that means, who had uh, interesting lives and in particular work lives. And so this was, you know, this was um, the original idea for the program. We were going to call it Mrs. America. And, um, and I was working on this with a bunch of women, uh, you know, in my, in my uh, office in New York. We wrote up a proposal for this and turned it into the uh, producer, sent it to the producer. Back then, we didn't have email. Back then, we were still using faxes. This was this was in the um, uh, this was in the early nineties, right? And then we, you know, waited, and uh, a few weeks or months later, we got uh, a fax back from Tokyo saying, you know, congratulations, we found a sponsor for your television show. And so we, of course, were delighted you know, we, we got on the phone and learned more about it. Um, it turned out it was, uh, um, the, the sponsor was a meat export lobby group. Um, and, uh, they loved the idea, but they wanted to turn it into a cooking show. And so we, you know, we thought, fine, we'll work with this. Um, and we made a series of, uh, television programs called Mrs. America. And, um, we traveled all over the country and, and filmed, um, women, you know, leading their lives, you know, these, inspiring women. They were, they were nice programs and the women that we worked with were wonderful, but this was all, you know, this, this was all part of a larger context. And I may, perhaps I should give us, um, give a little bit of background on that too. Um, you know, in, in 1989, the EU banned the import of U.S. meat because of the hormones used in, in meat production um, in the United States. There was a lobby group formed. It was called the U.S. Meat Export Federation. It was backed by um, the U.S. government, formed to pressure Japan into signing something called the New Beef Agreement. And this was intended to relax import quotas and um, increase you know, the American share of the Japanese red meat market. And so this New Beef Agreement went into effect. And in 1991, that's when the U.S. Meat Export Federation decided to back our television program and, and turn it into a cooking show that was really focused on meat, right? And every single episode had to have a delicious recipe for meat. This was a show that, that I ended up you know, producing for over two years. And so you know, that's the kind of larger historical context for the novel. The similarities between Ruth and Jane's career are notable. Both are commercial TV producers turned documentarian and storyteller. In addition to her career in TV and horror film, Ruth made two independent films. In 1994, she made the film Body of Correspondence, and in 1996, she made Halving the Bones, a documentary in which she traces her maternal family history, from Japan to Hawaii to Connecticut. 
I asked Ruth how she became an author. When I started writing this novel, really all I wanted to do was tell some funny stories. You know, I, I didn't intend to even write a novel. Uh, it, it costs a lot of money to make a film. By the time I made two independent films of my own um, and used credit cards to finance them and, you know, so was in pretty desperate straits at the end, you know, when I had a really massive credit card debt. And I wanted to keep making stuff. I wanted to keep making things, but I, I just knew I couldn't afford to make more uh, films at that time. Writing was always something that, you know, ever since I was a child, I... I loved to do. And in fact, my earliest ambitions were to, to write novels, but I, I kind of didn't know how to do it. So in any case, you know, after making these films and, and finding myself in this kind of credit card debt, it occurred to me, well, maybe I can take these notes that I'm writing about my experience in television, and maybe I can actually turn it into a novel. And so that's kind of how the whole process started. I gave myself a year to do it and decided that, you know, if at the end of the year I couldn't sell the novel and um, pay off my credit card debt, then I would get a real job. I just sat down to write some anecdotes about the time I'd spent on the road traveling around with these film crews doing, you know, a, a, a huge range of, of documentary shows because they were funny. Things would happen that were really weird and, and funny. Um, and so I started writing this and I was not thinking about intersectionality. I was not thinking about sort of entangled, you know, sort of interconnected webs of meat and women and capitalism and any of these things. It, it was the last thing on my mind, right? You know, this, and this is what happens. This is the way novels are born. I had no agenda at all when I started writing this. You know, it was just telling some funny stories. People that I was writing about, I, you know, found myself turning them into characters. And, you know, little by little, the stories started to grow, you know, and then I started to kind of think about what had actually happened back when I was out on the road with my crews. And I started to think about some of the issues that we encountered. And uh, I started to think about the way that media functions um, and the way it's supported and the effects it has on people. I started thinking about not just the, you know, the women that we had filmed in the U.S., but also women in Japan who had watched these shows. That kind of, you know, global interaction started to really, um, you know, it, it started to grow into a story. Um, and so ultimately, the novel became a story about two women on opposite sides of the planet who are connected by this television, you know, this cooking show um, about the meat industry. Little by little, the connections kind of grew. But it was a very, very organic process. And I also really think that as a writer, you know, I, I know that to approach a project with a didactic agenda is a disaster. You, you cannot do that. The more I write, the more I understand that um, when you enter a fictional world, when you start to create a fictional world, as a novelist, you have to do everything you can to dismantle your prejudices and to try to understand all of the different points of view that you're representing and to do your best to, to really literally get outside yourself 
and outside of your own opinions, outside of your own prejudices, um, and try to step into the body and the skin and the mind of the characters that you're um, that you're writing about. If you approach uh, fiction writing with yeah a didactic agenda, readers can smell that. At, you know they can smell that. They they know immediately. And you know there's nothing worse than being lectured to, right? There's that <laughs> you know. It, it, as we know, there's nothing worse than than somebody telling, you know, trying to tell you what to think, and certainly trying to tell you what to think in a sneaky way, right? And so, this is something. Any in any case, this is something that I've really um, come to understand. The more I write, the more I appreciate this. So, in order to to write the novel, I ended up doing quite a bit of research about meat. You know, to be perfectly honest, uh, when I was producing and directing the television show, we weren't really thinking that much about meat. We were thinking about women. It was kind of ironic because uh, some of the women that I was working with at the time were vegetarians. And yet we never really talked about the environmental impact or the, you know, the health impacts of the meat industry. We were really focused on this other thing. Um, really focused on the women. And and when I sat down to write the novel, um, I was really not thinking about writing about meat at all. I mean, certainly at the beginning, it was not, you know, I hadn't conceived of it as my year of meats at all. I was really, con- I was concerned with media representation and the way that commercial sponsorship of what we see on television as real, right, our our perceived reality is so heavily influenced by money and by commercial sponsorship. Um, and so this was the, you know, this was really the topic that I was interested in. I knew that I was writing a, a novel and, um, I, you know, I needed to come up with some kind of product that was being sold in, in these television shows. And by that point in my career, I had worked for some really problematic corporations. I'd worked for, you know, uh, the dairy industry. I'd worked for the alcohol industry. Um, I'd worked for the tobacco industry. And um, so all of these were candidates, right, for uh, the product in my novel. I knew that I wanted the the novel to be satiric, and there really wasn't, um, there's nothing funny about cigarettes. But there is, there was something, and, and here you have to remember that I do have this horror film background. There, <laughs> there is something you know, potentially uh, comedic about meat in a kind of gross, you know, a gross out way. Um, and so that's when I started really researching um, the meat industry. And it was the first time that I took that on as a, as a task. Um, and I, you know, I learned all sorts of really disturbing things about the meat industry. Many of the things that I'd kind of known before, but I hadn't really, I hadn't really kind of wrapped my head around. Um, and so one of the things that, that came up certainly was the use of hormones in, in meat production. Uh, and in particular, this one hormone called uh, DES or diethylstil diethylstilbestrol. It's hard to pronounce. Um, and um, I was writing about, you know, in, in the novel, uh, the two main characters are women, both of whom are dealing with fertility issues. And so it seemed just in terms of the research that I was doing, and also in terms of the plot of the novel, um, it, it seemed really clear to me that the that DES, this hormone, would end up being a kind of pivotal piece of information uh, that the novel could, the plot of the novel could revolve around. 
My Year of Meats explores fertility and the role of hormones in relation to women's bodies and meat. Jane faces an unwanted pregnancy, and she learns that her uterus is deformed because her mother had taken the hormone DES when she was pregnant with Jane. During the filming of one particular My American Wife episode, Jane visits a farmer whose cows are illegally given DES. She finds out because there's a little girl on this farm who goes through puberty prematurely. She's only a toddler, but she has breasts and already has her period. For Jane, this is one of the instances where she realizes that she could use her material that she's shooting for an expose of the meat industry. We also see the link between meat and women in the objectification of the American wives, who are, to quote from the novel, the meat made manifest, ample, robust, but never tough or hard to digest. Women, cattle and meat are all entangled in this novel. Meat does have this kind of fleshy, sexual resonance. In English, anyway, women are often referred to using the language of meat. Um, women are referred to as cows, right? And and but what's interesting to me is that you know since I was really interested in kind of making this link between representation and commercial sponsorship and industry, and in particular, in this case, the meat industry and feminism. At some point, I suddenly realized that if you if you take the word cattle. Right. The word cattle is, in English, is um, related to the word chattel. Right. And the word chattel is a word that refers to um, wives and slaves and livestock belonging to a man. Okay. Um, and both of these words, chattel and cattle, come from the Latin word caput, which means head. And, and of course, the reason that you know, that this is so is, you know, because women and slaves and livestock are counted by, you know, the number of head, um, the number of heads. And to push that a little bit further, the word caput, you know, this, this Latin word caput is also the root of capital from which we derive the word capitalism. And so these, you know, there's this kind of etymological network here. Um, of words that bring all of these themes together. Wall Street, right, the, the head of the American financial you know, district, um, used to be a slave market. So it was where slaves were traded. The stock market is called the stock market because of the livestock that was traded there. The, the kind of intersection here of women, of slavery, of meat, um, of money, all of this is all tied up in that one little etymological cluster. You know, even though I didn't intend for my year of meets to become a piece of activist literature, um, it, it seems to have become that. And, and that's fine with me. You know, one of the things that I noticed uh, when I was on book tour um, around the United States, and this was, you know, this was my first book tour, I you know, didn't know what to expect. And I remember being really kind of frightened when I went into parts of the country that were really reliant on, you know, the meat industry. And so, you know, I remember being kind of nervous uh, going into these bookstores, wondering if, if I was going to get significant pushback from the people who came. Um, but what I found instead was that very often the people who came to the readings, many of them were women. Very often what would happen is that they would, they would come to the reading 
with a clipping from a local newspaper, say from Kansas or from Colorado, you know, a, a local newspaper about some kind of problem with the meat industry, right? Some kind of environmental problem or something about hormones in meat or something like that. And, and they would come up after, after the reading and they would show me the clippings and they would say, I've lived here all my life, right? And I've never seen anything, you know, I've never read anything about problems in the meat industry. How did you know? How did you know that this was going to happen? When, when you wrote your book. And that was always very interesting to me because, of course, this information is out there. It's just, are, you know, are you attuned to it or not? Are you able to, you know, are you interested in it or not? Do you take the time to read those articles or not? And, um, and, and so it seemed clear to me that, that these readers had just never been interested in these problems surrounding the meat industry. And so the articles have been appearing about it for decades and decades, right? Um, but they just hadn't seen it yet. And so I think, you know, that's one thing that certainly literature does. It, it wakes us up a little bit, right? It puts us into um, the body mind of people who are very different from, from us. And so for a brief time while we're reading the book, you know, while we're reading the novel, um, we, start to, we start to perceive the world differently. And that's not something that we forget. When we enter a fictional world, we do it so fully, right? In order for that fictional world to come alive for the reader, the reader has to enter that world and the reader has to co-create that world. So I look at readers as collaborators. I don't look at them as um, consumers at all. I, I look at them as collaborators because I think, for, you know, for a book to succeed, for a novel to succeed, the reader has to bring his or her lived experience to it as well. And, and then that stays with you, right? Um, so that that's uh, that's something else that over the years I've really come to appreciate about literature and the way literature functions. When I started writing the novel, um, I was really thinking of it as you know a light comedic, slightly satirical, but still you know a, a kind of picaresque novel. But then, of course, the more I wrote and the more I researched, you know, other elements started to creep in. And, you know, again, you know, I, I think back to my experience in the horror film business, right, and how these horror films that were so popular and still are, right, there's something a little bit over the top and funny about them. Right. I mean, they're not the, the films that we were making were were, um, you know, they, they were not serious films. And I was thinking about the way we've become so inured to horror that and to violence that we don't really see it. Right. We don't perceive it in our lives. I do think that's changing. I notice that there's a greater sensitivity to violence um, and, and particularly to subtle forms of violence, not overt forms, but subtle forms of violence. People, I think, are a little bit more sensitive about that now, which I think is, a, you know, which I think is a good thing. You know, when I was writing this in 1998, that was not the case. I think there wasn't the sensitivity to, you know, to violence, you know, really wasn't there. And I certainly wasn't sensitized in that way. The more I you know, the more I wrote, the more I started to see. Um, and I think the process of writing actually started to sensitize me to these things. And it also became very clear to me that these characters 
who I was very fond of. You, you, you love your characters, even your villains. You love your, you know, you, you have to kind of love your, um, your characters, all of them. I knew that bad things were going to happen to them. You know, I knew that violent things were going to happen to them. There was no way to avoid that. It was very clear that that was the, you know, that was the trajectory. That was the path of the, of the film. I mean, of the, <laughs> of the novel. And, um, so I, uh, there was a, there's a scene, for example, um, in, in a slaughterhouse when Jane, the protagonist, you know, who's a documentary filmmaker is sent to film inside a slaughterhouse. And I remember in the weeks and months leading up to writing that scene, I remember just being really upset, not, not wanting to go there just not wanting to write that scene at all. Um, there's a scene where the other protagonist, Akiko, who is the one who's in, you know, in an abusive marriage, um, there's a scene of, uh, of domestic violence that, again, I could see it coming. I knew it was coming. I knew that it was, you know, that something bad was going to happen to her. I didn't know quite what, um, because I tend not to know until I'm actually writing it. But I remember feeling um, very reluctant you know, like, oh, I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. You know, I just don't want to go there. A book has its own will to become. Um, and it seemed really clear to me that there was no avoiding this, given the way the book was kind of unfolding, that this was just, you know, this was going to be part of what needed to happen. And, you know, I remember in the scenes as I was writing them, I remember also being conscious of toning them down, of really making an effort to dial back the violence. That's the opposite of what you do in the horror film business, right? In the horror film business, you turn up the volume in those scenes. And so I was very, I was conscious of turning down the volume and trying to, you know, find a way to allow this inevitability to happen, but at the same time to do it in a somewhat sensitive way. I think, you know, it's interesting to think about now because I think if I were to rewrite those scenes, if I were to rewrite this book, I think I would turn down the volume even more, you know, because I think that readers have, um, we, we just have a, a greater understanding now of trauma, for example. And so I think that, yeah, probably if I were to write it now, I wouldn't eliminate it by, by any means. I wouldn't change it in any significant way, but I might, as I said, turn down the volume a little bit more. The book was written and published. It was published in 1998 in the U.S. And in 2018, I think it was, I was invited to Stanford University. The book had been chosen, even though it was 20 years old by then, it had been chosen as the first-year read. So all of the incoming first-year students were encouraged to read the book. And um, so I was invited to the university. There were three authors and the topic of that incoming program was, I think, science and literature. Um, and so my year of meets was looked at as a, you know, an example of the way science can be incorporated into a fictional world, you know, in, into a novel. Um, and so I went to Stanford to talk to the incoming for class. And I remember being quite nervous about it because 
you know, I'd, I'd since moved on and written about other things. I'd written about, I'd written about potatoes, you know, I'd written about genetically engineered potatoes. I was writing about Buddhism at the time and my, my focus had sort of shifted. I, you know, I got online and I thought, well, I should really research, you know, what is the situation of, with meat and the meat industry right now? And of course, you know, doing just even a little bit of research pretty much convinced me that that the industry hadn't really changed its practices in any kind of significant way. Although there were a lot more options. Um, there were a lot more, you know, sort of uh, small um, artisanal cattle farms. And, and uh, there was a kind of local, the local food movement, of course, has become, has become very big. And so, so that was interesting. But the really surprising thing was when I went to Stanford and talked to the first year students, they were so much better educated about the the situation they there, there was still a lot that they that they didn't know i think there's a lot that we all don't know just in general they were more conversant with the situation with the facts of you know about factory farming and about the environmental impacts of meat production and about hormones used in meat and all of these kinds of you know a lot of food related topics they were just a lot more um, savvy about that and that was really encouraging it was great because I also sensed a, a very strong sort of activist attitude amongst the students. They knew about this in more detail and they really, they, they wanted to do something about it. The fact that 20 years after its publication, the book is still being used in, in these ways, you know, and it's being read and perceived as relevant by 18 year olds. Of course, you know, as a writer, that makes me really happy. But as a you know as a citizen of the world i'm not so happy because what i would really like is for the book to be completely irrelevant now for people to read the book and think oh my goodness those were the bad old days i'm so glad that this isn't the way the world is now i'm so glad that we've cleaned up our act and that we've improved and that this is no longer something that we need to worry about but unfortunately that's not the case so you know as a writer I'm really happy that the book is still out there in publication and young people are reading it, but as a, as a citizen of the planet, not so much. There's a quote by the Italian anarchist philosopher, um, Antonio Gramsci, and he said uh, that, that what we need is pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. I always think about that. I think it's important to be realistic when we look at for example, the way capitalism works, planetary outcomes fall out of capitalism in terms of the environment and, um, you know, human rights and social justice and, and all of that. You can't really look at that and feel super optimistic, right? But on the other hand, I think we need to find that optimism. It's our almost moral imperative to try to find enough optimism to keep up the fight, right? <laughs> to, you know, to, to, to continue. That balance between pessimism and optimism, between the intellect and the will, I think is, is, uh, is critical. And fiction, I think, is an exercise in a way of imagining a better future. And, and here, I'll just read the last little bit of My Year of Meats, which is exactly about this. Jane, the protagonist, is talking, and, and she says, um, In the year of meats, truth wasn't stranger than fiction. It was fiction. Ma says I'm neither here nor there, and if that's the case, so be it. 
half-documentarian, half-fabulist. Maybe sometimes you have to make things up to tell truths that alter outcomes. That's one of the reasons why I continue to try to write, is because no matter what it is you're writing about, you are trying to understand the world differently, and you are trying to tell truths not in a didactic way, not necessarily in an activist way. When I'm writing, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, for me, how am I going to continue to wake up in the morning? How am I going to continue to live with myself? That's my concern. That's what drives me to write novels. And if the novels go out into the world and readers read them and consider these these problems, think about these problems, good. That That's good. I have no problem with that at all. Jane continues, I don't think I can change my future simply by writing a happy ending. That's too easy and not so interesting. I will certainly do my best to imagine one, but in reality, I'll just have to wait and see. And I think that's true also for all of us. There's no way that any one of us can change the future, but we have to keep trying, right? We have to keep trying to improve. We have to keep trying to do better. Um, And that, you know, that requires everyone. Did you enjoy this podcast? We invite you to check out the program of Winternachten Festival at www.winternachten.nl. I am Joelle Kornave, and I'm the programmer behind the Winternachten Festival program Meet Woman, with, among others, Agustina Basturica, author of Tender is the Flesh. Ruth Azeki's novel, My Year of Meats, was a major inspiration for me in thinking about connections between meat and women. Both are widely objectified in advertising, film, and language use. Although the novel was published 24 years ago, it is a staple in thinking about these fascinating connections. Meet Woman will take place on Thursday, the 16th of June, 2022. This podcast was powered by Writers Unlimited, the organization behind Winternachter Festival. I thank Ruth Hoseki for being our guest today. This podcast was made and edited by me, Joelle Kornave.